From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Heidi Julevitz went to Avalanche School so she'd be prepared for the caprices of nature. What she learned is that the real threat is a human one. Nature doesn't kill people with avalanches. People kill people with avalanches, she writes in the New York Times. What all this taught her about human nature. Then ankle monitors may allow offenders more freedom than a prison cell, but the devices can feel like scarlet letters. Today, in our series Disruptors, Colorado companies are developing alternatives. Plus, Ridgeway author Peter Hessler's book about ancient pharaohs and modern-day garbage collectors in Egypt is up for a national award. It's also an exploration of time. They didn't see time the way that we do. It wasn't straightly linear. They didn't write history the way we did. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Avalanches have killed two people in Colorado so far this winter. In the United States since 1950, nearly 1,100 people have died in avalanches. We're going to start the show with a novel way of looking at what poses the most danger. It's not nature. It's people, writes Heidi Julevitz in the New York Times. And hello, Heidi. Hello. For this story, you attended Avalanche School. You also read firsthand accounts of people who were caught and almost died. What were you able to glean, first off, about what it's like to die in an avalanche or nearly die? Uh, Yeah, I think it's um, not a very desirable way to die. Um, I uh, learned that, um, you know, the luckiest people who get buried in avalanches are the ones, obviously, who are um, dug out after between four and ten minutes. Um, The very unlucky ones um, are the people who are buried. They do not suffer any, um, you know, any kind of internal injuries that would um, kill them immediately. And so they are stuck um, under the snow, buried for hours and hours and hours, and sometimes never found. And sometimes never found, but sometimes found, I suppose, enough that they can tell some of the story. What are the accounts like of what it is to be in the avalanche in those moments of the the snowfall? Well, interestingly, I went to go buy a new winter coat the other day, and I had a long conversation with the uh, salesperson who, in fact, had been buried in three – well, he'd been in three avalanches, once partially buried, once completely buried, and another time he came upon an avalanche scene and had to dig out six people. Unfortunately, there were seven total. They didn't find the seventh one in time. And he almost couldn't really talk about what it was like to be buried. He was buried himself for four minutes before he was rescued by his friends. And um, he just kept saying, it it was just really bad. It was just really bad. Um, and I mean, you can imagine how bad it would be, right? You're, you're in the dark. Um, you sometimes don't know which way is up. You have no idea how deep you're buried. And, you know, the average um, depth of burial is um, almost three feet. Um, that's a lot of snow on top of you. In your avalanche class, about half the room wanted to become less scared of avalanches, and it seemed like the other half wanted to become more scared of avalanches. Just yeah. explain that for us. You know, I think um, recently a lot more people are taking avalanche courses. Um, this is something that um, has only sort of recently, I think, entered the backcountry ski culture as something that you should be doing if you're going to be 
out there fairly regularly. So half of the people somewhat sheepishly, honestly, were like, I can't believe I've been backcountry skiing for some in some cases, decades, and I never took an avalanche course. Mm. Um, And so they realized um, just basically in some senses how lucky they'd been, and they wanted to actually have some um, some more, uh, like just better ways to be able to make safe decisions while they're out there and aware that there were decisions to make. and then other people had just begun backcountry skiing. And again, because the culture seems to be changing quite a bit, you know, if you're in an entry-level position now, backcountry skiing, it's very much recommended that you take an avalanche course. So these people, having not been out there and not survived for many decades, were understandably um, nervous and wanted to know, you know, how can I be nervous in the right way? I don't want to be unreasonably scared if actually there's a safe way to go out there on a day, for example, when the danger is considerable to high. There's still a way to go skiing on those days. You just have to know what those ways are. And there are um, a series of measurements for how dangerous the avalanche risk is. Um, And that's part of what you learn in avalanche school. But are, are there ways in which taking the class might embolden you Unjustif- mm. Unjustifiably. Yeah, I mean, that was the irony, right? So right after we got into the room and we've, you know, been learning some basics about snowpack for about two hours or so, the instructor suddenly said, um, oh, and by the way, you are now more likely to die in an avalanche than you were before you walked into this classroom. <laughs> so, um, and, uh, you know, and I mean, it, it makes sense, right? I mean, it's so much of what we learned about was essentially just human nature. And it's human nature, I think, to to believe, oh, well, now I know something about how not to die in an avalanche. So you might take a slightly greater risk having that knowledge. Um, and so, yeah, suddenly we were in this position of um, being more likely to die than if we'd never taken the class in the first place. So Heidi Julevitz, who wrote about avalanche danger and avalanche courses for the New York Times, it's this idea of human psychology, what you learned about your own mind, that I think most fascinates me about what you wrote. Um, what What did you learn about your own mind and maybe the kind of inherent weaknesses in our thinking that makes us vulnerable to avalanches. Yeah, avalanches or anything. I mean, that's, <laughs> I think, why this... Co- no, seriously. I mean, that's why this course was so fascinating. Because, yeah, I went in thinking, oh, I'm going to learn about snowpack. And that was really not the focus at all. And that's not the focus of avalanche courses um, now either. They've really shifted into looking at these things called thinking traps, basically. There are six big traps. um, And they're traps that we probably all uh, fall into on nearly a daily basis. Some of them are just basically like peer pressure, you know, Um, or the one that I think maybe a lot of us are susceptible to, again, in our daily lives as well, is something called expert halo. And that's when essentially you just turn off your own critical thinking and you decide to just trust this person who has more 
um, knowledge than you about something. They are an expert. You are not. And so you just kind of blindly follow them. Um, but sometimes experts take chances that um, aren't the kind of chances that you would take. And to, to completely turn your mind off and just follow somebody, I mean, whatever, we can obviously um, pretty quickly extrapolate into a daily situation where that's not the greatest uh-huh. way to <laughs> approach, yeah, your life, right? The expert halo, right, that works in avalanches and it works in romantic relationships, I suppose. I, I think. Oh, yeah. Also, what I found fascinating is that you can imagine if you're looking for avalanche danger, that you would be assessing a slope for safety and stability. Uh, instead, I guess you should look for instability, that you need to flip the filter Yes, you need to flip the filter. Yeah, just talk about that. Yeah, well, I mean, I'll use an example of something that happened to me. So, you know, I was going into an area where it snows a lot, obviously, and um, I needed to have a four-wheel drive car to get up to the mountain. And so I rented a four-wheel drive car. When I got to the rental agency, I said, is this car a four-wheel drive car? They said, no. I went out. um, They gave me a different car. I said, is this a four-wheel drive car? They said, Yes, this one is. And I said, thank you. And I set off. And um, and I very quickly suspected it wasn't, but I didn't know for sure. And I was late for something. And I committed like six um, errors in terms of these traps, right? Like, oh, I'm already, I didn't want to embarrass myself by going back and asking, are you sure? Again, I would seem like a neurotic, you know, um, problematic customer. And um, anyways, long story short, I get up to the mountain. Sure enough, there's a huge snowstorm. And then I just think, you know, I don't think, I'm not sure that this car has four-wheel drive. Drive. And so I started looking online. I, I even called the rental agency and everyone was kind of like, yeah, I think it does. But no one could really tell me for sure. And then uh, so I did that thing where I was like, I kept looking for instability. And I finally, finally confirmed that it did not have four wheel drive car. It, it didn't have four wheel drive. It was a two wheel drive car. And, and uh, to apply that to an avalanche, for instance, the, it's the same idea with snow. It's mm-hmm. how are how are you reading yeah. the decision, and how are you falling into a potential trap in this? Yeah, I mean, because look, you get out there; it's a beautiful day. You've probably traveled a long way to get there. You don't have that many opportunities to get back there, um, and uh, you can look at a snow pit. You can dig a snow pit, or you can look at sort of various um, features of the terrain. Um, you could have read the avalanche report, and all of these things should, could be suggesting a degree of caution that maybe you're not interesting in heating because you. Just want to get out there, um, and so if you are looking for um, if you're looking for a reason to go, like one of the very m- most tricky, I would say, uh, warning categories for avalanches is considerable, right? And so some people, there's a woman who was caught in an avalanche. Um, there's a video of her. I watched it, and she said. I don't know. I saw that the avalanche um, rating that day was considerable, and I thought, well, I just considered it, <laughs> uh. right? And, and so she considered it and decided it's a beautiful day. I want to go. Um, so, yeah, I mean, you, you, you're you really kind of fighting um, a lot of factors when you're trying to get out there, right? Um, you're also trying to ascertain the dynamics with the people you're with, and yeah, maybe yeah. they really want to go. Heidi, thanks so much for being with us and for helping us explore the broader thinking. 
Of course. Heidi Thank Julevitz. you so much for having me. She wrote about the human factor in avalanche danger for the New York Times. A new study in the Journal of Outdoor Recreation and Tourism finds that the age of avalanche victims is increasing. Researchers think this may be for several reasons, according to the Colorado Sun, that as we age, we have fewer chances to recreate and we become more aware of our mortality, so we may act more irresponsibly. And any avalanche safety training may also have faded over the years. Ankle monitors help law enforcement track people on probation and parole. They can be an alternative to imprisonment, saving government money. But critics say they're unreliable, uncomfortable, and can be a scarlet letter. But new devices are emerging. The focus of Disruptors today, our series about new ideas in business. The University of Denver, there is a center dedicated to corrections technology. Joe Russo runs it. And Joe, welcome to our program. Thank you. And Michael Hirschman is CEO of a Colorado startup called TrackTech. It's one of several companies that have developed next generation tracking technology. Michael, welcome to our program. Good morning, Ryan. Uh, Before leading this company, Michael, you were in law enforcement, and you actually wore an ankle monitor to have the experience of it. What was that like? What stood out? It was not fun. While I was doing tracking of sex offenders in the Denver metro area, a lot of them had ankle monitors, and we had been developing some new technology and thought I needed to understand what that was like to wear an ankle monitor. So for about two weeks, I did wear an ankle monitor, and... uh, I actually had a buddy of mine from, uh, he was working with the NSA, and I went to the airport to pick him up, had his two kids with me during the period of time that I was working uh, with this ankle monitor. And I'm sitting in the airport terminal and realizing that here I have two kids with me and the ankle monitor is showing and I'm doing everything I can to pull my pants down to keep it covered. It was very embarrassing. So it was the stigma that you felt the most. What about the actual wearing of it? Like, is it, does it become uncomfortable? It is uncomfortable. Uh, even the smallest of the ankle monitors that are out there really do not allow for somebody to go running. I'm a runner, and so it was difficult with that. The charging of it, uh, you're walking during the day, so it's difficult to charge it. Typically, you would put the charger cable up into the bed at night and I twist around so that would come undone and find myself with an uncharged monitor. All right, Joe, how ripe for disruption is the monitoring of offenders, would you say? Well, I think I think the timing is, is quite right. And I, I think, you know, Ryan, I'd like to go back and share a little bit about the history of electronic monitoring because most people don't understand it. So back in the 1960s, twin brothers, Kirk and Bob Gable, studying at Harvard University, um, came up with a prototype for a local monitoring uh, system for juveniles in the Boston area. And their idea was to track movements and provide two-way communications to support youth and provide positive incentives for pro-social behaviors like showing up at school on time, Uh, getting assignments done and that sort of thing. 
Now, over the time, that concept kind of um, evolved into the current GPS technology that uh, we may be familiar with. But it's interesting to note that you know these smartphone applications really maximize that original concept of being able to connect with clients, support them, and provide positive incentives in real time. The whole idea. So it's very interesting, kind of how it evolved. Yeah, the whole idea of monitoring has been encouragement of leading a better life, of reducing recidivism. Do I have that right, then, Joe? Well, that, that was the original concept by the Gable twins. Um, and unfortunately, the way that electronic monitoring evolved over the years since that, it was more punitive, it was tracking, it was monitoring. And I think what the beauty of the smartphone applications is that we can, also, we can track your location via the smartphone, via the location services. But the other pro-social reinforcement benefits, I think, are far more powerful. Uh, being able, again, being able to connect, support, and uh, encourage. So that these become a portal to what? Just encouraging messages? Um, uh, they, they could be positive reinforcements for, for pro-social behaviors. We can use the smartphones to deliver services, whether they're cognitive skills development, anchor management. Um, there's a lot of research that shows that smartphone applications are a good channel for treating uh, mental disorders or uh, substance disorders. Uh, so there, there, there's good um, research behind the use of these applications to uh, to change behavior. Okay, so you use the term smartphone there, which is a leap from ankle monitoring. Michael, why don't you tell us about the device you've developed? It's sort of like a smartphone. If we imagine someone on parole who's being monitored, like how would their experience change? Oh, immensely. And, and I want to point out, you know, Joe talks about the tracking, track tech, a lot of people in the industry think, oh, you're going to track them. That is true. We can track, as he stated, but our focus is to put people on the right track. And by using a smartphone, we're leveraging the culture that exists in our world today. People don't leave the house without their clothes on. It's kind of the same thing with the smartphone. They don't leave their house without their phone. I know that I feel like I'm missing an organ when I leave the house without my phone. Very true. And so we can actually use something that's very common, very uh, unstigma, you know, for a person to get data, have calendaring so that they can make their court dates when they're supposed to, be reminded of something they're supposed to do, possibly even stay away from an area that they're not allowed to be in. Ah, if there is a restraining order or something like that, or they need to maintain a certain distance from a school. So it doesn't sound like your product necessarily is an outright replacement for an ankle monitor. In other words, there would still be a need for something attached to someone, wouldn't there? No, we actually have overcome that by using biometric information. So whether it's fingerprint, uh, iris recognition, facial recognition, that device is identified to a specific person who is our program member, and then we're able to use that information to make sure that they're with the device. That they're with the device. What happens if they forget it at work or something? I've certainly done that with my phone. Yeah, and it would be the same. Because with the angle monitor, you can't forget it, right? It's on you. That is true. And so again, I go back to the culture. You know, people typically keep their device with them, and it is a term and condition that they have their device with them. Uh, now, certainly, there's the additional attachment that can tether to the, the smartphone so that if you needed that level of containment, you can also do that. Ah, okay. So it could be kind of not permanently connected to someone, but for a, a long period of time. And what, what are the periods of time that people might be wearing an old-fashioned ankle monitor or be relying on devices like this? Joe, can you give us a sense of that? 
Well, it varies quite a bit from jurisdiction to jurisdiction and also based on the, the type of offender, but it could be anywhere from 60 days, 90 days uh, to a year. In some cases for uh, sex offenders, some states uh, have lifetime GPS um, uh, requirements. Um, many states have, have uh, kind of come back from that initial uh, initial direction, but it could be the, you know, the life of the, the uh, parolee, for example. We're talking about next-generation ankle monitors and uh, this is part of our coverage of new ideas in business, disruptors. And Joe, do you, do you think this conversation and the you know, technology that Michael is developing, do you think that it is representative of a larger shift right now in corrections, in, in our view of crime and punishment? I, I think it is. Um, I think there's a strong movement away from the punitive approach we, we are, have strong bipartisan support in Congress uh, and in the states uh, that we, we're not effectively applying uh, our resources in the best way. So we're looking for different ways of uh, addressing crime and how we can uh, rehabilitate people. And I think this, this type of a technology really uh, is, is well in alignment with that. Uh, th- there's a philosophy that's prevalent now that probation parole officers should be more about coaching than referees. And a smartphone application like this, the technology enables you know, the officer to be more of a coach, to be that supportive uh, pro-social influence in, in a life and, and connect that individual with other pro-social peers in a way that, you know, traditional ankle, ankle braces simply can't do. Pro-social, just meaning positive, pushing them in the right direction. Michael, um, exactly. I think that offenders now have to pay to some extent for ankle monitors. Would they have to pay for this? Uh, it is typical that a lot of agencies have the offender pay. That is changing in a lot of places, and there have been terms like debtor's court where somebody is going back to jail just because they can't pay for the services of an ankle monitor and the such. Uh, Our service is, is no different where it depends on how the agency wants to do it. But what we are looking to do is to lessen the cost, increase the capability and the positive output. And by putting a lot of the additional services, such as the coaching, the counseling, the rehabilitative materials on that device, you maximize the ability. And you want to reduce recidivism as a result. When you say the coaching, like how would the coaching come to me on a device like this? Sure. Well, our system is encrypted end to end. Uh, We also, we've got a great partnership with Cisco and we leverage the Cisco video teleconferencing system so that you could actually be out in the community and your officer or a coach could go ahead and contact you directly on the device and have a session with you. And have a session. I, I wonder, just a larger question here, Michael, how you balance the idea of, of running a for-profit company um, that is related to corrections and justice. And, um, you know, I, I think people think of, of for-profit prisons, for instance, and, and might balk at that idea. But can, can you just address before we go this idea of kind of profit and corrections mixing? Sure. Well, I think it's important to recognize, and there's different numbers out there, but one number is $182 billion a year cost. To put that in perspective, our defense budget is $718 billion. Do you mean of imprisonment? Uh, That includes imprisonment. It includes the court costs, et cetera. So what we're doing is uh, our company is about the solution. We're really not going for the money. We know the money's already there. Uh, And with decent uh, margins, you can go ahead and, and solve the problem and still make money. 
That's Michael Hirschman. He's CEO of TrackTech based in Greenwood Village. The company makes a mobile device that can track criminal offenders, and he says keep them on the right track. We also heard from Joe Russo of the National Law Enforcement and Corrections Technology Center at DU. It's Colorado Matters. Teens who feel like they're under constant academic pressure are at greater risk of developing depression or anxiety. Pushing teens to excel can also increase sleep deprivation. Using technology in a bedroom during the day actually corrodes your ability to fall asleep at night in that same bedroom, even if the tech isn't there. I'm Jenny Brendine, and as CPR News has been exploring what's got teens under stress, we're also finding solutions. Look for tips for teens, parents, and schools now at CPR.org. When state lawmakers take on polarizing topics, the tension can extend far beyond the state capitol. Legislators sometimes become the subjects of threats and intimidation, and they say it's getting worse. A proposal to address the problem could be introduced as soon as today. Here is CPR's public affairs reporter, Benta Berkland. One of the most high-profile recent threats against a state lawmaker happened in 2013. This man accused of harassing state representative Rhonda Fields, leaving her and her daughter fearing for their safety. Fields was sponsoring two gun control bills that had attracted a lot of controversy. And 7 News reporter Amanda Koss just talking with the Fields. Amanda, the emails are so explicit we can't repeat them on TV. Fields got a permanent restraining order against the man and the case was dismissed. But in the past five years, plenty more lawmakers say they've faced threats for doing their jobs. Now a new bill would make threatening a state lawmaker comparable to threatening a judge. Instead of a misdemeanor, it would become a felony, punishable by two to four years in prison and up to a half million dollars in fines. We're supposed to have passionate discussions and debates about policy, and and nowhere am I wanting to prevent that. That's Democratic Representative Kyle Mullock of Thornton, a main sponsor of the legislation. He says the law right now isn't strong enough to deter people from crossing the line. There's just no place for that, and that's what we really need to stop. Mullica says when he sponsored a bill to increase vaccination rates, he found his family the target of threats. It had a profound impact. For his Republican co-sponsor, Representative Matt Soper of Delta, the issue may be less personal but still pressing. He says threats put political power in the hands of thugs has a chilling effect on our democracy. Because if the public is able to actually do this, and they're actually able to be effective at, say, taking steps to intimidate a lawmaker to where they change public policy, then we just turn into a nation run by warlords. The problem of public threats crosses party lines. In recent years, Republican representatives and their families have also received threats for bills they've sponsored or comments they've made. Despite bipartisan support, some lawmakers have concerns. Democratic House Majority Leader Alec Garnett says he's dealt with people coming to his home and contacting his family. But he doesn't think increasing the penalty would stop bad behavior. Garnett says in some ways, dealing with this comes with the job. By serving the public, you are front and center a little bit more. Republican Representative Mark Baisley takes a similar view. It's not a fearful position to be in. I don't think we should take ourselves all that seriously. We're citizen legislators. We're four months of a 12-month year. Opponents also worry about criminalizing legitimate criticism. The Colorado ACLU says the bill could be a slippery slope to censorship and believes current law is adequate. Rhonda Fields, now a state senator, says she's undecided on the measure. 
but understands why people feel the penalty needs to be stronger. When my life was threatened, I took it very seriously. But lawmakers also receive a lot of cruel and disturbing criticism that may fall short of a direct threat. You do have to kind of learn how to protect your your soul and your mind from not letting these evil things that are being shared about you be a come of who you who you are as a person. Democratic Senator Dominic Moreno of Commerce City says it's so bad, it's hurt his ability to communicate with constituents. As soon as you post anything on social media, even if it's just purely informative, you're going to get insulting comments. To fight back, he's developed his own approach. Moreno tries to find his trolls and then call them to talk. Moreno adds that the toxic environment online does bother him, and he's starting to avoid social media altogether. And after his next campaign, he says he's considering an early exit from politics. I'm Benta Berkland, CPR News. Colorado Democrats have tried over and over again to repeal the death penalty here without succeeding. This year may be different. A bill to get rid of capital punishment passed its first test this week in committee on a party-lined vote. The families of murder victims testified, like Charletta Evans, whose three-year-old son was killed more than 20 years ago. She has since become an advocate for restorative justice, which is focused on reconciliation between victims and perpetrators. Evans says if her son's killers had been executed, she wouldn't have had the chance to talk with them and learn from them. We've had enough trauma, enough violence in our state, and we don't need it anymore. We don't need our government to say, we kill. Thou shall not kill. Others said their loved ones' murderers have since died in prison of cancer or of natural causes, and that didn't bring them any sense of peace. Meanwhile, Maisha Fields also addressed the committee. She's the daughter of Democratic State Senator Rhonda Fields of Aurora. Maisha's brother and his fiancée were murdered. The men responsible are on death row. Maisha Fields doesn't consider herself a death penalty defender, but she doesn't want lawmakers to take away punishment options for her family. She'd rather they devote energy to unsolved cases. Today, we sit here to fight on behalf of three people who are guilty of multiple homicides and murders. But yet and still, in Arapahoe County, we have 144 or more cold cases that you've done nothing about. District attorneys on both sides of the argument also testified. In some instances, they say the pressure of facing the death penalty can provide leverage and resolve cases more quickly. Others suggested voters, not the legislature, should decide the issue. And we'll keep you posted as the bill moves forward. A journalist who lives in Ridgeway, Colorado, is a finalist for the National Book Critics Circle Award. Peter Hessler, whose name will be familiar to readers of The New Yorker, is up for Best Nonfiction Book. For a time, Hessler moved his family to Egypt, despite the unrest there, to learn about the country's culture, politics, and history, from pharaohs to modern-day garbage collectors. Why garbage collectors? We'll get to that. Hessler's book is The Buried, an Archaeology of the Egyptian Revolution. We spoke in May. 
you, your wife, Leslie, and your twin one-year-olds, I think, right? They were one at the time. 17 months, yeah. 17 months. Uh, got to Cairo in the fall of 2011. Protests were raging. Uh, we've got tape from Tahrir Square just before longtime President Hosni Mubarak resigned. What are they saying there? Uh, the people want to overthrow the regime. This was the chant of the revolution started in Tunisia. It was picked up in other countries as part of the Arab Spring as this movement sort of spread. Um, you know, it was it was very significant because the emphasis is il shab, the people. You know, that this was the first time that it wasn't just a battle between different leaders or different factions. I mean, they were speaking in the voice of the people, the common people. We need to change this system. Now, that would strike people as rather every day in the United States of America that the people would be calling for change. That was unusual. Yeah, you know, the history there is very, uh, like many countries in the region, Egypt was often occupied by foreign forces, long history of colonialism, followed by periods of authoritarianism and basically military-backed dictatorship. So, you know, there, there is no tradition of democracy there before the Arab Spring. You reported on the revolution, on Mohamed Morsi's election, his removal from office, and Abdel Fattah el-Sisi's rise to power. But at the same time, in the background of this book is the ancients. And it strikes me as so fascinating the concept of time in Egypt. One of the reasons that I wanted to go to Egypt is because of this ancient history. I find that fascinating. And I'd previously lived in China for 11 years. So I, I like this combination of being in a modern, vibrant country that also has this incredible ancient tradition. Um, and so I spent a lot of time on archaeological digs in the south of Egypt, which is where the culture first developed, and got to know Egyptologists. And you, you start to learn about how ancient Egyptians thought and what they, how they described their world. And time was one of the things that really jumped out at me because they didn't see time the way that we do. It wasn't straightly linear. They didn't write history the way we did. They had two different words for time. One of them was neha, which is a time of cycles, like the cycles of the Nile River, the cycles of the seasons, the cycles of the sun. Um, and the other type of time was jet, D-J-E-T. And that's sort of like, it's very hard to define in English. It's almost like the eternal, but it's the eternal present. It's almost time without motion. It's the, where the the pharaohs go once they die. Yeah, the, the, yeah pharaohs are in, in the gods. They, they're in jet time. You know, the pyramids are in jet time. When you make a mummy, you're, you're trying to put that individual in jet time. You know, and it's interesting, where did these come from? Um, you know, probably the most insightful Egyptologist, I spoke to about this, a man named Ray Johnson, who's at the University of Chicago, he, he believed that it came from the landscape because you have the Nile Valley, you know, which is this incredibly fertile place where the river has its annual cycles and people have always depended on those cycles and this created this sense of, of cyclical time. And then right next to it, you have the desert. And the desert in Egypt is not like you know, it's not like going to southern Colorado or places that are dry. I mean, there's absolutely nothing there. I mean, it's totally stark. Mm. And he thought that that created this sense of unchanging permanence, you know, and, and that other sense of time. When you look at the cyclical sense of time, you know, the time that's about the flow of the Nile, for instance, do you see how that reverberates in Egyptian politics, that, that there are cycles and that there's repetition? They saw it in ancient times. I mean, they 
they weren't really interested in progress in the way that we would. They didn't see, you know, history as a straight line and we're trying to go somewhere. It's more that things recur, the pharaohs come, the pharaohs die, the new one comes. And within that framework, you do see very similar patterns in terms of political strategies. You know, pharaohs, this this was an incredibly stable system. I mean, it lasted from, you know, 3000 B.C., until about 300 BC, you know, that the Egyptians, you know, pharaohs were in power. And so it's, it, it was a remarkably stable system. Did the revolution change that? Yeah, I mean, m- many things had changed, of course, because Egypt has had these waves of foreign invaders, the Ptolemies, the Romans, the Persians, to modern colonialism with the British and the French. You know, so you, one of the amazing things about it, Egyptian history is you had this long period of, of the pharaonic years, but then from about 178 or so BC, that was the last Egyptian who declared himself pharaoh. From then until 1952 AD, there was not a single Egyptian in power. I mean, this was a country that wow. for many years was ruled by foreigners. I mean, these figures we think of like Cleopatra. Cleopatra was Macedonian. She's not Egyptian. Somebody like Muhammad Ali, who was the great reformer in the early 1800s, he was Albanian. You know, so Egypt was always ruled by outsiders, and this has a big impact on the country. And so it's not a place that had this kind of self-determination that you see in democratic societies. And so the Arab Spring was part of this process of the 19th century trying to take control of their country and trying to reassert themselves. Well, uh, let's go from all of that to garbage collection, shall we? (laughs) Because one of the people you focus on is a garbage collector named Saeed. Uh, Will you read a passage about meeting him? Yeah, you know, because one of the first things that happened when I when I moved into this apartment in central Cairo is that the, the landlady gave me the various instructions of how things worked. And she said, well, for garbage, you put your garbage outside this door and the, and the guy named Saeed will pick up. Well, who does Saeed work for? He doesn't work for the government. He doesn't work for any private company. And I said, well, how do I pay him? And she's like, you have to work that out with Saeed. You know, this sort of mysterious thing. And for somebody, I'd lived in China for more than a decade where everything's always very, very clearly defined. So anyway, this is when Saeed finally came after picking up our garbage for about a month and and the first time I met him in person. Yeah. And then I'll ask you about how this relates to yeah. some of the larger themes. He stood barely taller than five feet with short, curly hair and a well-groomed mustache. His shoulders were broad. And when he held out his hands, I noticed that the veins on his forearms bulged like those of a weightlifter. Speaking Arabic slowly for my benefit, he explained that he was there to collect the monthly fee. I asked him for the amount. It's whatever you want to pay, he said. How much do other people pay? Some pay 10 pounds, he said. Some pay 100 pounds. How much should I pay? You can pay 10 pounds, or you can pay 100 pounds. (laughs) He wouldn't bargain in the proper sense. Those numbers never moved. He dropped them like end lines on a football field, and then he left me with all that empty space. Finally, I handed him 40 Egyptian pounds, the equivalent of six and a half dollars, and he seemed satisfied. Uh, What a foreign concept this must have been for you. It's foreign, but it also makes you very nervous, you know, because as an outsider, your great fear is of doing something wrong or of misinterpreting something, misunderstanding. You're doing this all the time. And so when you have these situations that are very unclear, it makes you very nervous. And in a language that you were just beginning to acquire. Yeah, we'd studied Arabic intensely for two months before going there, and then we were having tutorials every day. So, uh, you know, we were making progress, my wife and I, but I mean, I had a long way to go. Why focus on a garbage collector? Yeah, you know, I got interested in him because, first of all, after that meeting, I realized that I was seeing him everywhere in the neighborhood, that he was always out on the streets and he was a very visible presence. Later, I kind of learned that, well, this is how he, you know, because nobody's obligated to pay him. But if he's there, 
and people run into him, they feel more obligated, you know, and they were, they're reminded that he's doing this service for them. And I realized also he wore very dirty clothes and he did that off deliberately because then he, people rem- remember this is the kind of work Saeed's doing and he's doing this for us. We owe him something because he's not a garbage man in the American sense. He doesn't wear a uniform. He doesn't work for a company. He has no benefits. He depends, in a sense, on this PR campaign that he's conducting in the neighborhood while he's also collecting the trash. So that interested me. But then what really interested me was when he started bringing me things from the garbage, various medicines or foreign objects. And he would ask me, what's this worth? What does this do? And then I started to understand, oh, he's sorting this stuff so intimately. It's all being hand-sorted, and he knows an enormous amount about the people in the neighborhood, including me. What does it say about Egypt and its systems or lack thereof to you? Yeah, I mean, this is one of the characteristics of Cairo in particular, but Egypt as a whole. Um, It is not very systematic, and yet somehow things function. You know, like this garbage system, to me, seemed crazy. Nobody's paying this guy officially. He doesn't work for anybody. But he's he's incredibly hardworking, and he is supporting himself. I went to his home, and he you know he had a nice home. He he did quite well. And this system as a whole, nobody ever planned it, and it was just different waves of migrants moving into Cairo, finding a niche in the garbage world to the point where, for example, at one point in the 1920s and 30s, there were Christian Coptic Christian migrants came in from Upper Egypt, which is the south of Egypt, and they found a niche in garbage because they could raise pigs, which Muslims of course could not. And when you raise pigs, you can feed the organic matter that comes out of garbage to the pigs. And the outcome was a very efficient system. You know, they recycled about 80 percent of what they collected, at least before the government started to mess with the system. And you know, that's twice the recycling rate in the United States. You know, this is characteristic of Cairo. Most people, like 65 percent of the population in Cairo, live in neighborhoods that are not legally built or planned. They're hmm. called Ashwayat. And, and so this type of self-organization is characteristic of the place. It was also characteristic of the revolution itself. How so? There were no real leaders. You know, this was one of the issues of the revolution. Who was in charge? You can't even really point to a party. There were different groups like the April 6th movement and so on. But generally, it was a leaderless movement, which in some ways people found very impressive. The, the Egyptians, young Egyptians in particular, sort of thought parties were necessarily corrupt. They liked the idea of a leaderless movement. But it did have a real cost in the long run because these sort of informal systems will function up to a point. But then you reach a point where you would like to see some structure to it. I mean, what if Saeed gets sick? What if he gets hurt, you know, doing this kind of work? There's no health benefits or something like that. There's no retirement. You know, what if his knees go bad from hauling this stuff? So these guys are usually done in their 50s, and then life is very hard for them. And and the same thing for the revolution. Huh. You, you can have this great movement, all of these people gathered on Tahrir Square, Mubarak steps down. But what comes next if you don't have parties, if you don't have leaders? How do you negotiate? So it was sort of one of the tragedies of, of of the revolution. You said uh, something in passing quickly earlier that I just want to glom onto that lower Egypt is in the north and upper Egypt is in the south. Here's how you write about it in the book. The ancient Egyptians first divided their land into upper and lower, a classification that confuses moderns who orient themselves by compass rather than river. South is up, north is down. This is my favorite line. The imagination has to be recalibrated in this part of the country. It's always confusing people. You say Upper Egypt and they assume, you know, that this is going to be in the north, but that's the delta. And, and, and we have to think like the pharaohs thought. I mean, they were the ones that named it. And it's upper because the river runs that way. I mean, when the Egyptians first went to 
Mesopotamia, they called, you know, the land where the river runs backwards because they just thought all rivers go from south to north. If they saw the Mississippi, they'd think it was, you know, that it was a mess. (laughs) (laughs) You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we're speaking with journalist Peter Hessler of Ridgeway, Colorado. He's on staff at The New Yorker and received a MacArthur Genius Grant. His new book about his five years in Egypt is called The Buried, an archaeology of the Egyptian Revolution. And uh, throughout this time, you shadowed archaeologists at important sites around Egypt. I wonder how it was to be so focused on modern developments and the ancient developments at the same time. It was more a matter of balance to me. You know, they offset each other. You know, Tahrir is an overwhelming place often. You, you know, thousands, sometimes, you know, tens of thousands of people on the square. These political events are intense. People are very worked up. You know, it can become your entire world. You can have a kind of tunnel vision. And I found a it bubble, very... bubble, really. Yeah. I, yeah. I, can fi- I found it very useful to have this pattern where I would spend time doing the modern stuff in Cairo and then periodically I would make my trips to the south and be on an archaeology site where there's very few people. You know, these, these places tend to be very empty. The archaeologists are working very slowly, methodically over long periods of years. It was a nice contrast and it reminded me that sometimes you got to step back a little bit and try to get some perspective on what's happening. You left Egypt in 2016. What do you think the future holds for the country? I think at this point, it's hard to see positive effects from the revolution. This is one of the tragedies of that moment is that in the end, and if you talk to most Egyptians now, they often, average people often say, Mubarak actually wasn't that bad. Maybe we shouldn't have overthrown him. You know, there's almost this sort of buyer's remorse. Hosni um, Mubarak, who had been in power, what, 30 years? Almost 30 years, yeah, yeah when he was overthrown in, in, in 2011. And sadly enough, it damaged the economy, it destabilized society, and it frightened people. People are afraid of this kind of chaos, and so they don't want to see this kind of sweeping change. And they're, they're generally quite content to be back in a you know, military-backed dictatorship. I mean, it was, it was very striking to me when I talked to, for example, Said, who I knew very well, after Morsi was overthrown in the coup and before Sisi had come to power. I asked Said, who do you want to be the next president? And he's like, I don't care who it is as long as he's Mishtoib which means not nice. As long as he's not nice. <laughs> and he said he's got to be Shadid. That was a word people always said. We, we have a, our leader needs to be Shadid, which is hard, strict. I mean, he wanted somebody cruel, you know, somebody who's willing to throw people in jail. It's sort of awful. But, you know, it reminds you that this authoritarian instinct runs very deep in the human psyche. I mean, this is another thing you learn from studying Egyptian history and, and not just Egyptian history all over the world. And, 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 you know, democracy is a very fragile thing. The sense of institutions mattering more than strong figures is also a very fragile thing. Yeah, you reflect this beautifully in the book. There, were, there was like a leak of documents and it revealed how Sisi spoke of mm-hmm. his people. Yeah. Sisi often reminded Egyptians of their shortcomings. He said that people slept too late, and he criticized their work ethic. At a meeting of military officers that was recorded and released as part of the Sisi leaks, the general complained that citizens expected Zebelin or garbage men to pick up their trash but wouldn't pay for the service. They also spent too much time on their phones. People are walking around all the time like this, Sisi said, holding an imaginary phone to his ear. No, 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 my son. Countries like this will never grow and have a real will to work and fight. He often sounded like a father hectoring a small child. You are like the very older brother, he told a group of military officers in another leaked conversation. 
Or the very big father who has a son who is a bit of a failure, not paying attention. Do you miss Egypt? Yeah, I mean, I miss the, uh, especially the travel we did to the archaeological sites. I mean, they're really magical places, and there's nowhere else in the world where you can really do that. And this was an amazing time to do it because of all the political chaos. Very few people were researching this stuff in terms of journalists weren't going to the sites. And so the Egyptologists tended to be very generous with their time, and I could spend a lot of time on these, in these places, and that, that was great. And we took family trips all over Egypt. We had a car, and we drove all over the country, and, and that was also wonderful. Uh, your kids were what? Uh, just about six when you left. Them. Yeah, they they were six when we left. So they had a very strong feeling for it. You know, they they were old enough that they and they felt very connected. They still do. They they speak of Egypt very fondly. It was the, you know the first home that they knew. How's your Arabic? You keeping it up? It's okay. I mean, it slips. You know, I I, I don't have much chance to use it. And to be honest, we're transitioning to China in August. So right now, my mind is starting to make this shift because I kind of have to get back to my Chinese. Ridgeway to Egypt and then Ridgeway to China. Yeah. 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 I mean, that's why we chose Ridgeway, because in China and in Egypt, we live in these incredibly big, intense cities. Cairo's, you know, 17 million people. Chengdu, we're moving, is going to be about the same. And Ridgeway, of course, is a little town of a thousand people. So that's our our escape and our break from urban life. It's your palate cleanser. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Peter, thanks for being with us. Thank you. Journalist Peter Hessler, who lives in Ridgeway, Colorado, we spoke in May. His book, The Buried, an archaeology of the Egyptian Revolution, has been named a finalist for the National Book Critics Circle Award. Winners will be announced in March. Finally today, new music from Denver band Tennis. The duo is comprised of wife and husband Elena Moore and Patrick Riley, Fitting, perhaps, that they've chosen to release their next album, Swimmer, on Valentine's Day. Meanwhile, they've released a single to tide fans over. single from Denver band Tennis. Their fifth album, Swimmer, is out February 14th, and we'll be talking with the duo next month here on Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner. Thanks for spending time with us. This is CPR News.